All right. Good morning. This is Andy Brewer with Northwest AHEC, and this is episode four of our Healthcare Insights podcast. And I have the pleasure to introduce our guest today, which is Dr. Julie Freischlag, who is the the CEO of Wake Forest Baptist Health and the Dean of the Wake Forest School of Medicine. And I'm thrilled. I know you're a busy person, so uh, I'm just thrilled to have you here. I'm glad you could spend a, a little bit of your time with us. My pleasure to be here. And uh, we could spend the whole hour talking about your accomplishments, but I wanted to start off with, you know, I've been walking through the entrance of the old school of medicine on the E floor on Hawthorne Hill and Every day I walk through there, I'm struck by the banners that hang there that celebrate the dedication of this uh, of one's life to the service of humanity. And you've certainly done that. And we again, we could talk the whole hour about what what all you've done. And I just wanted to ask you, what was your first inclination or notion or or memory of of wanting to dedicate your life to the service of humanity? Yeah, that's a great question. Probably has to do with my mom. My mom was a teacher, and she taught grade school. And then as uh, we became older, there were three of us, and she really became a substitute teacher because she uh, wanted some more time with us. And no one would substitute teach in Uh, the classrooms where there were disabled or disadvantaged kids. So she was one of the few that was a substitute teacher in the special education rooms where she would go in there and teach uh, children with behavioral and emotional disabilities. And it turned out uh, my younger brother actually ended up being a special education teacher as well. So I watched her do that and, and saw the joy she got out of taking care of those that needed a little extra help or those that needed some special help at that time. And it didn't phase her at all uh, to go in there and work with whatever uh, students she saw. So with that, I wanted to be a teacher. And then it turned out they closed education. I ended up uh, going into medicine and looking at who you could help who can't help themselves and whether or not that's a patient, uh, teaching students, which I always wanted to be a teacher, or teaching residents how to do an operation. I think that whole piece about helping others to the next spot came from her. Okay. And then what about your specialty as a vascular surgeon? Correct. Yeah. Well, I actually ended up um, switching to surgery because I had spent time on surgery and I had a great role model. It's always that one person. And my one person was Tom Witt. He was the senior resident and he could do anything. He could operate. He could run a team. I was so impressed with him. Uh, so I decided to go into general surgery. And then I met another mentor when I went to UCLA, Ron Busatil, who was a young faculty member. He's now chair of surgery there. And I went into his research lab. And again, he was a great technical surgeon. He was was great with patients, and I wanted to be just like him, and his specialty at that time was vascular. And it was a new specialty where we were learning how to do bypasses and to uh, do balloon dilatation of arteries, and we were able to do these big operations and have people survive and do well, which was uh, different than the 50s and 60s. So the 70s and 80s really brought it on the doorstep, and it was a brand new specialty. So I liked that excitement as well. Wow, wow. Tell me what what you see as the differences between when you went to medical school and what you see now as the dean of our yeah. school of medicine here. Well, that's a great question. I think back then, uh, especially in surgery, we were all about how we were fixing things. So people would present to us with an aneurysm. My mom actually ended up having an aneurysm or blockage of arteries. And actually, my dad had blockage of arteries. Uh, and we would fix it. We didn't really think a lot about how to prevent it. Now, 
I think we know for a fact that we can prevent a lot of diseases because we understand them better. We can actually look at those that are going to get atherosclerosis, which is what I treat, and get them to quit smoking and exercise and watch their weight. And we also know if you have a job and you're able to be a, a participating uh, person in the community, you're healthier too. So it now students have to really learn about population health, preventing disease, because we also don't have the resources to treat everyone. We have all these amazing things we can do, but they're expensive. So we need to make sure we can do them for everyone that needs them, which means we need a lot of healthy people. So students now really have to learn how to prevent disease and how to uh, take care of patients in the whole realm of their uh, illnesses, and, and that includes their social, their emotional, as well as their physical health. So students have to be a lot more adept at motivational interviewing and health coaching and, and that sort of thing, I guess, is one of the things you're saying there. And they have to work in a team. I think when I was uh, uh, in residency, they said, you know, you're the one. You, you can prevent everything. You know, it's all on your back. We took call every other night. We were we were the soldiers out there to do it. And now we use teams where you actually don't have to do it all yourselves, but you could use a social worker or a nutritionist, or you would have a nurse practitioner help you see your patient, or you would put them in teams of, of exercise or teams for diet. So I think arranging a team to take care of the patient, I think, is what we're looking at now, too. It doesn't always have to be you, but you need to know you need to use the team. You mentioned population health. Uh, tell me a little bit. We, you've made some big announcements in the last week about new school medicine in Charlotte and then also the translational research and population health center here in Winston-Salem. Um, is that something that's going to focus more on the, the population lifestyle modification, perhaps? Yes, and I think getting people access. Uh, that's probably our biggest thing is wherever you are, can you get access to health care? And it's not the big health care. It's not coming in like when you need a big operation or uh, if you're in a car accident. You need that, too. But getting access so that you can get educated about how to take care of yourself, getting your blood pressure checked, seeing a dentist. We found that having healthy teeth uh, prevents atherosclerosis, makes you have a full term baby, all those kind of things. So coming up with ability to get you access along the way, whether or not you have insurance or not, whether or not you have a job or not, um, and that we're able to assess you uh, so we can actually help you be the healthiest you can be along with your family, because there's families involved with this too, uh, so that you can eat better, exercise better, and raise your kids so that when they get older, they know the right things to do. Because if you weren't raised in a healthy environment where people didn't smoke and, and ate better, then as you grow up, you're not going to know how to do that either. So yes, that's what we want to do not only here, but as we have more and more clinics throughout Western North Carolina, that people could access uh, health care uh, in a simple way, a primary care doctor, a nurse practitioner, a physician assistant that actually can help you take care of yourself so you don't get sick. Right. Um, does the Population Health Center, does that have uh, any outreach uh, modalities, I guess. Uh, I know the Faith Health is an initiative we have here, and I've talked about it before, but uh, is that going to be expanded to get more 
I guess, extenders of uh, healthy lifestyle education out in the communities. Yeah, and actually in your business, too, we can use other modalities even besides visiting a clinic. You know, doing a podcast, having access on a website, you know, learning all about how to eat better, uh, using energy to make sure that you can figure out how you could exercise in your lifestyle that you have. Yes, all of those things. And I think we can roll that out not only with people there to see you uh, and motivate you, but also things online. The new generation does everything online, even our students. They really prefer lectures online that they can watch a recording, and instead of watching at regular speed, they speed it up uh, so they can watch an hour lecture in 40 minutes to do that. So I think coming up with other ways to touch people to help prevent disease, uh, even besides extenders. So healthcare is a business, and I've, I've seen one of the ways that uh, healthcare is reaching the communities is through clinics in pharmacies like CVS and and Walgreens and those kind of, kind of things. I know they've done some announcements how they're going to add clinicians there present at the corner. Do you see that as a is a good thing? Well, I think it depends. You know, one, you, patients need to know what the extent they can get care there. I do worry that people might go into the Walgreens and have a heart attack and think someone's going to be there to take care of them where not so much. Uh, but I think if you listen to the person that runs the CVS, she uh, came from Europe and her her father was a pharmacist that helped people. And I know my mom grew up in a little town and the pharmacist was the person that helped people. So I think similar to your um, your minister, like in Faith Health, or your pharmacist, or even your your drugstore could help you get information, uh, make sure you get your medications the cheapest you can, because medications are so expensive, and really many people can't afford all their medication. I think getting education and perhaps flu shots, your blood pressure checked, all of that is really good, uh, no matter where you are. Uh, and perhaps we could do better as an academic health center having access spots like that. But then patients need to know, too, if there's something found wrong, they need to move on to see a physician or see a nurse practitioner or a PA or somebody that can help you do that. And you don't go uh, to the drugstore if you're having a heart attack, that you need to go to the hospital to do it. But I, I think depending on where you are, that could be the only thing in town. There's not doctors in every town in North Carolina. So if it is the drugstore or the Walgreens that you actually can get started there, I think that's uh, fine for people to get access. Well, that raises a question here. You know, Northwest AHEC represents 17 counties, and a lot of those are rural and, you know, southern Appalachia, so uh, pretty involved in the opioid crisis and the dearth of practitioners in those areas. Are, are, are we doing anything here to encourage or at least incentivize uh, young residents to go out into the rural communities and practice medicine there? I mean, I, when I was growing up, we watched... Uh, what was that uh, show? Oh, gosh, now I can't, now I'm blanking. It was the doctor who moves up to Alaska. And oh, yes. What was the name of that? Trapper John, I think. No, Trapper, no. Was it Trapper the, John? Um, I forget which oh, one Oh, gosh, was. someone will yes. kill me for not knowing this. Yes. But I remember that. Yeah. Is uh, Anyway, but what are we doing to encourage that? I mean, I know the, the, the business is in the populated areas, but there's also a great need um, for not only sick care, but preventative medicine and, and lifestyle modification in those rural rural communities. Absolutely. And, and what we have done is, you know, we actually bought Wilkes Hospital, you know, because that hospital, if it had closed up in Wilkesboro, 
most of the people work at the hospital. Now that Lowe's has left and, and, and a few others in Lexington, too, uh, the hospital is one of the biggest employers. So by purchasing those hospitals and working with them and their clinics, we actually have a center that is available. We have also partnered with Sparta to build a critical access hospital up there where they don't really need a hospital. When you look, there's only like one or two people in a hospital per day. So they don't need a hospital, but they need a place to go to get seen if they have a heart attack or if they break a bone and then they're able to be transferred either to us or Hugh Chatham to do that. And we are partnering with many of the smaller hospitals by digital health to sort of talk to them to make that happen. For our students, we're trying to encourage them that there are opportunities to work in the rural, especially if they're from a smaller town. So similar to how I met that surgeon who I said, I want to be that, having them do rotations uh, in the smaller clinics, either in Wilkesboro or in Lexington, or spending time with primary care doctors in some of our primary care practices. Because we just purchased one, as you know, a few years ago, and now we've put all our primary care doctors together in Wake um, a forest health network. And we didn't have primary care doctors in a system till about four years ago. So by having that, we will be able to put students, uh, PA students, as well as medical students in those practices so they can see the joy of that. And before that, we were just the main hospital. So giving them that opportunity is critical. Along that same vein, how do we arrange or what are some trends or what are some ways to tackle the challenges of the cost of medical education and encouraging people to be general practitioners and family medicine practitioners. Yeah, we just had alumni weekend, so we were talking about that. As you know, one of the medical schools, uh, New York University, just endowed the whole medical school so it's tuition-free. And that takes hundreds of millions of dollars to do that. Um, and we don't quite have that much, but we have some for scholarships for students. So we're really trying to encourage them uh, to keep their debt down so that they live reasonably. And one thing is they can live very reasonably in Winston in Salem as far as cost goes, and trying to curtail tuition so that it uh, it doesn't get any higher than it is, and also finding scholarships uh, from the alumni. Uh, so if you were previously a physician to give back, I know I've given money back to my medical school for medical student uh, uh, education. Um, so we're hoping that will help as well. We also are looking at the length of medical education. Some uh, medical schools have gone to three-year schools versus four, because uh, the fourth year is really a year that you interview and you don't do as much clinical work. And we had done that at my previous medical school. So looking at the length, the tuition, and then uh, some uh, jobs you get actually can forgive your tuition. Uh, you used to be able to take those loans and defer the interest till you were done training, but that no longer exists. So it's really the interest that builds with that that can be very difficult for students. But it's a problem across the country. And part of it is learning how to give a really intense, great education to a student, which is worth, you know, tens of thousands of dollars. Uh, and it is a great investment to become a doctor, but at the same time, it hits them right when they're young and they're not making as much money as we, they will later on in their lives. The new center, uh, new med school is going to be opening in Charlotte. The, the term next generation is thrown out there. What what, what kinds of things, innovations do, do you see being in, in place there? Um, both technology and approach to learning and teaching and, and research and all that. 
Yeah, well, partly we're thinking that we'll partner. It will be a regional campus of this school, so it's a, not a separate school. It is Wake Forest School of Medicine. We'll be hopefully be able to use some of the um, lectures and things uh, from here so that we'll actually be able to have them participate electronically or online because many of the students, again, prefer not to go to class for lectures. They like to watch them online. Then they're... Um, there are small group sessions uh, where they learn how to do physical diagnosis, ultrasound. We do a lot of simulation for conversations as well as procedures, things in the operating room and emergency room. We would still do that. And then we are looking at whether or not it could be a three-year school. A lot of them have done three-year schools, especially if you know who you want to be. If you know you want to be a primary care doctor or a psychiatrist, that we can actually put you in a curriculum to get you there a little faster versus that you're still looking around trying to figure out who you want to be. So we haven't come up with all uh, the thoughts yet, but we're thinking this would be a great way to create something innovative that actually could influence us back here, that it actually could make this school and our curriculum even better. Even though we have revolutionized the curriculum here, we could even make it better by this. Yeah, this is a fantastic facility we're sitting in today. I mean, I'm just amazed every time I pull up and what are some of the differences as far as the rigor of medical education versus when you were there um, compared to today? Yeah, I think they have to learn more. You know, it, it, and what's great is now there's more uh, ways to keep track of everything. We used to carry a little book that we wrote notes in, and we called it our book of knowledge that we would keep in our pocket. And when we had to look up something, um, we would find it in our book, or we'd come up with little uh, acronyms and eponyms to remember things. And, and now all you have to do is touch your phone, you know, so they can actually... Yeah, we call that Wikipedia now. <laughs> yeah, it is. And now you can find anything anywhere. Uh, so part of it is, do they have enough stored in their brains so they don't have to use their phone when they think of a differential. Um, but I think it's great that there's more opportunity to retrieve data, uh, but there's so much more to know. I think that's what's really hard, and keeping up with what's there I think is hard. Uh, the other thing I think we ask the patient's opinion a lot more. We, When I uh, trained, it was like telling you, the patient, what we're going to do and telling you, the patient, uh, what the choice is. Now we actually have a course that we teach here to our faculty that really looks at involving the patient more in the care and letting them make the decision with you or having them tell you what you just told them and do you really want this operation and really having the physician uh, patient decision making. And, and that is great. It takes more time. It takes more explanation. It takes uh, pausing to make it happen. But it's so much better for the patient because they help decide exactly what they want to do and how they want to do it. So I think that part uh, has really made it so that people coming into medicine need to have better communication skills and also be able to identify and talk to patients. And over all over that. That's really better. So the patients understand what they're doing, what their choices are. And then when it doesn't go the way they wanted, they understand that that was part of the, the risk and the, the treatment plan, uh, where before sometimes we didn't know what was going to happen or we didn't explain it well enough. So I think that's what we need in students now is not only the ability to synthesize lots of knowledge, but be a, a more caring, open uh, communicator with your patients. 
good. I think the the patients are a lot more, well, I don't know about educated or knowledgeable, but they have access to a whole lot more information. About and some it. of it's actually true. Yeah. Yeah, that, and some not so much because there's a lot out there. And then we know the younger generation really takes more advice from their friends than from you or me. And so if their friend says it's no good, you have to explain why it's not so good so that with with the friends so the whole uh, communication on social media is fascinating yeah that kind of leads me to a couple questions i had um you know we talk about hippocrates in in the in the medicine and um you know the the notion of first do no harm uh just kind of wax philosophical on how society might be different if we all took that oath every aspect of society we well and it's a great thing every year with graduation, we get to repeat that. You know, I love being an academic physician because you do see new students come through every year. You get to repeat that. And do no harm sometimes is do nothing. And I tell you, I think that's the hardest thing in our culture of medicine in the United States versus some of the other places where medicine's practiced throughout the world is that we don't like nothing. I mean, all of us want something, and we really want it to, to believe it's going to help. But if the treatment or the intervention has either no opportunity to improve you or very low, I think that's the piece where we should do no harm. And, and now we do have evidence knowing it's going to help or not. Uh, I think that is the biggest piece is realizing when to do nothing. And it's hard as a patient or a patient's family to realize to do nothing. I, I My dad got sick after his um, bypass, and I had to put him in hospice, and I had not done that before. My mother had died suddenly of a stroke. Um, but it was actually very peaceful. He was ready to go. We went to hospice. He passed in a really wonderful way. So I think when the patient has the ability to say, I'm done, there's nothing more beautiful than that, where you go, of course you are. You're 89. Um, he lost his leg, so it was time to move on to wherever the next step for him was. Uh, but I think being able to have those conversations where you decide, not to. Now, sometimes you don't have that choice. The patient's not quite with it, or the family doesn't agree about that. Luckily, my brothers and I all agreed. I was sort of the advanced directive, so they agreed. They're not physicians. But I think if you do have a chance to have the patient, their family make the decision for no more intervention, it's it's really can work out very well. Yeah, I was thinking along the lines of everyone's life. So before you light up that cigarette, take the oath and go, okay, <laughs> stop that. Or, yes. no, I'm not going through the drive through this morning yes. and, and that kind of thing. So, I, Well, we wish we had an app to make people do the right thing, you know, because we talk about exercise, don't smoke, eat better, all of that. And how do you get an app that makes that happen. You know, I think the new generation is much healthier and exercises and understands the implication, but there is that way you were raised. It's the way you have your comfort food or you give yourself uh, a gift of sitting and not being active. Um, and those that smoke, it's really hard. Both my parents smoked. It was really hard. I'm not sure either of them really ever quit. I think they sort of pretended to quit and, and smoked less. Um, but I think it's really hard when you have habits that are not good for for you um, to break them. And so really never getting that habit in the beginning is probably the way to be. Yeah, so I'm, I'll maintain everyone should take that oath, you yes, know, middle I school do. perhaps. I <laughs> do. You have to touch people in middle school. There's no question. Back to Hippocrates, uh, let thy food be thy medicine and thy medicine be thy food. I think nutrition is something that's worked its way in the medical curriculum. 
uh, at least more and more. And we're doing some culinary medicine classes at Northwest AHEC. And I'll have Joseph Skelton uh, on the podcast, I think, next week. Yeah. Um, what are some other things besides nutrition that are that you've seen incorporated in the medicine curriculum since you you were in med school? Yeah, that's really great. I've been over to the Brenner uh, area, and uh, it's really great to teach people how to fix food in a more healthy way. Well, I think we've spent some time... Uh, with the students uh, to make them more resilient when they come in. The first month we spend time so they have more emotional intelligence. They know how to rely on themselves and let us know about their personal health and learn how to be a good, strong health care provider because it's hard. Even the first couple years where you have to study is hard. And then certainly uh, delivering health care and, and taking care of sick people is hard as well. So giving them that inner strength to make that happen. Uh, we do teach them about population health the whole time they're there. So they uh, it starts on day one where they learn about the importance of giving education to their patients on how they eat and exercise and ask those questions about do you are you sad today or uh, do you feel like killing yourself today and all those things that we were really paused to ask people about and really try to get to the bottom if they are smoking or if they're taking drugs I just saw a commercial actually um, where for one of the healthcare providers and Ted Danson talks about going into the doctor and and actually tells you to tell them the truth, you know, and he, they hand him a piece of paper and he gives them, oh, oh sure, I'll give you my autograph. And they go, no, we want you to fill out the form. You know, we want to know and fill it out truthfully so we can help you. So it was a great advertisement, I thought, that we teach them how to spend time with the patient to get the information. Mm-hmm. So I'm going to transition a little bit. What what, what keeps you up at night? Oh, um, trying to continue to be innovative um, so we can have discovery and research and new things in a time where there isn't a lot of extra resources, money, and time. And so how do we keep innovation going at the same time of delivering great care, great line of care, and making the math work. So uh, that's my worry, is that 10 years from now, they'll say she, uh, she kept the trains running on time, but it's the same train. You know, I would like them to know that we made a new train at the same time of keeping them running on time. And the opposite of that question, what are you most excited about? Oh, probably the same thing. <laughs> we're uh, the new students coming in, the the research teams. We did a series of symposiums. We've done 28 of them since I've been here from all the departments and centers. And we'll continue to do some next year, probably more on themes and teams. Uh, but, oh, my goodness, listening to the young people, I asked them to have mainly the young people present their research. And they were fabulous uh, about how they're energized with either imaging or um, new uh, medications or devices, our ability to predict Alzheimer's. It was just great. Uh, I just love being around an academic medical center. Just can't even imagine not being there. What uh, do you like to do when you're not being uh, all the things that you are professionally? Well, my husband and I are great walkers, so we walk three to four miles every day uh, over the weekend. I'm a swimmer. I just got an endless pool, so I actually can get in and do swimming anytime now. The weather doesn't have to be great, and it's got a big current now, so it's different swimming. So I'm learning how to do that, and I like that a lot. I'm an avid reader. I do. Uh, I read a lot of books, uh, which I really enjoy doing. And 
and then I'm a crafter. I make stuff. Um, my mom taught me that. So I make clothes for my granddaughter, and I make uh, Christmas stockings, and I make uh, placemats, and I'll craft a way to do that. So uh, I think that comes along with using my hands as a surgeon. And then my husband and I like to travel. So we uh, always uh, put in a great vacation and places we like to go. And we just bought a house down in Hilton Head right on the water, which uh, we just visited over the uh, spring break. And it's so peaceful seeing that. So I, I like that as well, too. All right. So what, what's the favorite place you've been on vacation? What is the place that you want to go sometime in the future? Yeah, well, I think the most recent one we really loved uh, was Turks and Caicos. It was beautiful. There's not many people there. The sands are just lovely and beautiful. It's great. Grace Bay Beach. Yes. And um, and I want to go to the Galapagos. And so uh, I've always been a Darwin fan. And so I think we're going to do that next year with my son and his girlfriend as she finishes her uh, PT school. So we're going to go to uh, Machu Picchu and go to the Galapagos uh, uh, celebrating um, my birthday and my husband's birthday. Well, if you need a guide, I know one that lives in Thomasville. <laughs> but I have a friend who, who does oh, really? guided tours to to Ecuador and, and the Galapagos. Oh, great. Yeah. Finally, words of wisdom that you would give someone like my 10-year-old daughter that wants to dedicate her life to the service of humanity. I mean, she wants to be a vet, but it's still very, very similar. Um, and, and what advice would you give to a, a, a young girl like that that wants to you know, break through and, and, and thrive and build resilience and really be successful? Well, I think um, to never quit dreaming that you can do anything you want. Uh, it won't be easy. I look like it looks like it was easy because I'm always in a good mood, but it isn't a slide. You don't just walk up a, uh, the slide and slide down. There's lumps and bumps and and things that will happen that will turn you left and right, but you'll end up in a really good place as you go forward. And people ask me, do you have any regrets? And I really don't have any. Not that everything's gone perfectly. Uh, but always keep dreaming. Always keep learning. I take these jobs so I can learn something new and, and get energy out of other people. There are so many good people in the world. And to, to really uh, use those good people to really propel you to even be a better person yourself. That's great. Well, I, again, I appreciate your time today. I know you're a busy person, so I won't keep you longer. Um, is there anything else you would like to, no. to add? No. Thanks so much. I really appreciate you uh, interviewing me.